As you take your seats, please turn your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Greetings from the Independent Presbyterian Church. It's always a delight for me to be with you and an honor, and especially to preach to you on New Year's Day. What a great opportunity. And as a little boy, I always loved the, the book of Daniel, not only for its great stories and its great hero, Daniel, but also for these latter chapters where there's all kinds of monsters and other interesting things. Daniel 8 is full of interesting things. So listen with your mind's eye as we read Daniel chapter 8, believing, of course, that the Word of God, the Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, our only rule of faith and practice. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at my canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and as he was, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, and he cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, and it called Gabriel. 
make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken." but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that have been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Father, I pray that you'd give us even greater understanding than Daniel. Pray that you would make clear to us what you would have to learn from your word, from Daniel chapter 8, that you would feed your sheep, strengthen your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the website for the local paper of Birmingham, England, it's an article by Ben Perrin, posted December 24th, 2022. Quote, woman arrested after silently praying outside abortion clinic. The article goes on, Isabel Von Spruce, 45, a director of the anti-abortion group March for Life UK, has been charged with four counts of failing to comply with a public space protection order and is due to appear in court next year. The city council order makes it illegal to engage in act of approval or disapproval, including prayer and protest in an area around the clinic. The article goes on, in footage captured on the street, a police officer is heard asking Miss Von Spruce, what are you here for today? She tells him she's just standing here. The officer responds, why here of all places? I know you don't live nearby. She replies, but this is an abortion center. And the police officer then says, okay, that's why you're stood here. Are you here as part of a protest? Are you praying? She denies carrying out a protest before adding, I might be praying in my head, but not out loud. She is then searched by a female officer and arrested on suspicion of failing to comply with the public space protection order. And of course, the videos of this incident have been shared widely on social media. It does uh, smack in some ways as a made-for-TV thing or a made-for-the-viral-age social media sharing. But whether it is or not, the, the scene of being arrested for praying in your own head ought to ought to have an effect on us. 
especially in a country like the United Kingdom, like ours. Uh, a Newsweek.com article posted 12-22-22, written by Shannon Power, begins, Norwegian artist who said she can... She, who said she has been charged by police for saying men can't be lesbians, faces criminal charges and potential jail time for her comments. Tanya Jeven, a lesbian who represented Norway in the 2016 Eurovision contest with her group The Hungry Hearts, is on hot water for comments she made on Facebook where she complained about Norway's gender identity politics. Jeven wrote, it's just as impossible for men to become a lesbian as it is for men to become pregnant. She wrote, men are men regardless of their sexual fetishes. And by section 185 of the penal code there in Norway, she has been arrested. Police confirmed with Newsweek that it is in fact this section 185 that she's being arrested for. And I, I wish I could dismiss stories like these, but I I think to be aware of the times, what it means to cross from 2022 to 2023, to be aware of the globalist technocracy around us, one thing does not stay very local for very long. And I, I, I draw our attention to this to, to illustrate again afresh, as if I needed to, the relevancy of a, of a book like Daniel, written to exiles for exiles. And in case you don't know, you and I, we are exiles. We are not where we belong. We are not home in the promised land with our king of kings in the heavenly kingdom forever. That's where we belong. We are not there yet. We are in this in-between state. We are in the church. We are stuck in the kingdom of man, longing to be in the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Daniel is written to people like us. And with the, the walls closing in against speaking bald truth, uh, of the walls closing in against simply praying in our minds in a public space, what are we to do? There's questions that come. How are we to fortify our churches and families for the storm that seems to be brewing on the horizon? As we think about the next year and the year after that and what is coming to your church and my church and the church of Jesus Christ around the world, faithful to his word, we need to be asking questions. And I think Daniel chapter 8 is actually a very helpful test case Daniel here tells the future. So we're going to look at this text and ask three very simple questions to help us walk through it. First of all, what is this text here? Is it really prophecy? Is it historically referential? Or is it kind of you know, uh, symbolic in some other kind of way? So what is this text here? Why is this text here? Uh, uh, why is the Lord giving this to Daniel here now? And then thirdly, what is this text here for? And that will be the application for us. The what is this, why is this, and what is it for? And by the time we finish, I hope we can feel the weight and the both encouragement and warning found in this passage to Daniel, but also to us. So let's ask that first question. What is this text here? Because there's a lot of discussion about how to read biblical apocalyptic prophecy. That's the genre, we might say, is here. And really, it's very distinct from chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel. We're much more familiar with the stories, the narratives in the first few chapters of Daniel. Uh, as we come into chapter 7 through the end, they become this kind of uh, memorable images and apocalyptic prophecy. Of course, uh, in some ways, chapter 8 is also like chapter 1. Chapters 2 through 7 had all been in Aramaic. 
So as we're studying this passage, there's a change in language. Chapter 1 is in Hebrew, and then chapter 8 through the end is also in Hebrew. That should be aware of that as we read it. Uh, and yet there's also this way, this couplet, in which that chapter 8 is like and similar to chapter 7, and yet also, I think, distinctly different. Chapter 7's visions, one of uh, monster after monster conquering and crushing the earth, is one in which Daniel has it in dreams, or he's asleep. Chapter 8, he's clearly awake. He's having visions and full conversations. There's the distinction. Uh, chapter 7, there's not really a location given. Chapter 8, he's in a specific location. He remembers and can name the place. Something distinctly different in the way it's happening there. Chapter 7, there is a larger question of how specifically to read. Are the, are the visions of the beast that conquer the earth, are they specifically historically referential? Is this uh, Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and then Rome? Or is this the kind of the nature of all of history going together? Or is it somehow both of those things? Whereas in chapter 8, we're given specifically what the historical reference are. We're given the key, an official interpretation that tells us this is the Medo-Persian Empire and this is Greece. So there's a, a slight difference there as Gabriel himself explains. So what is this, uh, what this is, I should say, is prophecy for ancient Israel, specifically when they're coming out of exile. Um, you know, my, my children uh, got sick right before Christmas, and, uh, you know, we all had head colds, and, you know, but right by Christmas Eve, we were just about all better, we thought. We were cleared up, and, you know, we sort of put our kids in the nursery, you know, think, hey, we already had everything, whatever else is in there, we've already had it, don't need to worry about it. Well, two days after that, of course, they're sick again. Uh, it's all too easy, I suppose, to uh, assume the worst is behind us. <laughs> this week, we all have ear infections, are, and things are far worse. Uh, and perhaps it's an alarming thing. Perhaps there's that same temptation for Israel, knowing that the 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied that they would be in exile, well, they're, they're coming up on the end. Uh, things, uh, you know, as we go back to the promised land, aren't they going to be so grand? They're going to be wonderful. Well, the word the Lord to Daniel, is to prepare yourselves. Things are not going to be so grand in the promised land. Things will be very complicated. So with the interpretive key given to us in verses 18 through 26, we're given what this passage means by Gabriel himself. Let's look back, starting at verse 3, at what we see unfold in this passage. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram... Standing on the bank of the canal, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, the two horns, we know, as it mentions already, are Medo-Persian Empire. Interestingly, they're almost always mentioned together, the Medo-Persian Empire, within the story of Daniel, within the book of Daniel. Uh, and, of course, it seems like the, the Persian Empire and Cyrus the Great seems to be the more notable of the empires. One is larger than the other. That seems to be a clear historical Reference, a correlation we can understand. But look at verse 4 as it continues. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Now to stop there would be a, a fearful vision itself, knowing that uh, mighty Babylon is followed by Medo-Persia. And one terrible kingdom after enough. That, that, that'd be a bad place to start. But of course, uh, it doesn't stop there. Uh, we see 
and uh, verse 5, how quickly things actually begin to move. And as I was considering verse 5, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground like a hovercraft, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Of course, we know this conspicuous king of the Greeks, the greatest of all the Greeks, Alexander the Great, the conspicuous horn. Verse 6, he came to the ram with the two horns which, had, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. Now, if I were going to have a, you know, take some, uh, some bets, hypothetically, on a, you know, a, a cage match between a, a goat and a ram, you know, they're, they're not called the Los Angeles goats. The Los Angeles rams, rams are thought to be more, you know, powerful and large and all that. So this is, this is an underdog fight here. You're, so we ought to be surprised by what happens if we know anything of the animal kingdom. In verse 7, uh, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the horn and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, and he cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Of course, here is a synopsis of the history of the Greek Empire uh, with livestock imagery. Of course, by age 30, Alexander the Great is, uh, has conquered the whole known world in something like 12 years, and then by the age 30, he's crying because he has no more worlds to conquer. Of course, by age 32, as we come to verse 8, he is dead and famously replaced by his four generals, Cassander over Macedonia and Greece, Lysimachus over Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus over Syria and Mesopotamia, and Ptolemy in Egypt. This is what follows very clearly from the historical descriptions. Now look at verses 9 through 14. We really narrow in on a specific moment and a specific small horn that eventually comes out of one of the four horns of some sort as we come to 9 verse 14. Um, the famous... Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary, Robert Dick Wilson, explains why there is this specific focus on this specific man. He says it's because what's described here is unlike any persecution the Jews had ever faced before. It's unlike any persecution they'd faced before. There's something to prepare them for, and which is notable because the Jews have a history of being persecuted. From the very beginning, they are enslaved in Egypt. As you read your Bible and you come to the story of the judges, it's a story of being captured and conquered by one people and then captured and conquered by another people, one after the other, until Assyria comes and takes the northern kingdom into exile and Babylon comes and takes the southern kingdom. They've got a notable history of being conquered and enslaved, oppressed and persecuted. But what is coming, this vision is telling the Jews, is unlike anything that's come before one is coming who's not interested in simply enslaving them or exiling them, but is in fact ready to eradicate them. Look at verse 9. Now out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And of course, that is exactly how the history plays out. 198 BC, Antiochus' father, Antiochus the Great, or the third, defeated the Egyptian or Ptolemaic forces, that is, to the south, with his own Seleucid Syrian forces. He's winning south and then comes up and wins toward the east all along that embankment of the West Bank. And then, of course, the glorious land, as we read of in verse 10. Verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven. Some of the host and some of the stars it threw down and ground them uh, to the ground and trampled upon them. 
Uh, as Antiochus himself comes to power in 175, Antiochus IV, who is known as Antiochus Epiphanes, he has uh, interest in the glorious land, which of course to the Jews is Palestine or Jerusalem and Israel. Uh, however, it wasn't a clean takeover when Antiochus Epiphanes comes to power. Uh, he needs uh, money to pay his armies. He is happy to take from the temple all the tribute he needs, and the, the Jews at the time take, no, uh, take an exception to this, and so there is a revolt, a uh, Maccabean revolt, and then different revolts to throw Antiochus out. Antiochus takes a, a certain amount of umbrage to this. He's not only going to make them pay, he is in fact going to make them Greek. Uh, a famous paganization program becomes. He, he had already had coinage made by this time where he puts his own nickname on it, Antiochus Epiphanes, the epiphany of the god or epiphany of Zeus. This is how Antiochus brands himself. People famously make a play on words that he was not only Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus Epimenes or the madman because he is so ruthless. Maccabees 1 records him killing 80,000 Jews and selling another 80,000 into slavery after their first revolt, as is mentioned here in verse 10. A host of the heaven, of the holy ones of God, his beloved people. Of course, he infamously desecrates the temple with pig sacrifices and makes the priests eat pigs. So what the text is talking about in verses 10 through 12 Pick up at verse 11. It became great, this horn, and even as great as the prince of the host, which is a poetic way of saying God of heaven, and that the regular burnt offering was taken away from God in heaven and place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground. And famously, Antiochus burns the Torah scrolls of the temple. Now, interestingly, this vision is interpreted by what seems to perhaps be an angel there with him in verse 13. I heard a holy one. There's somebody else there, and he's, he's speaking there in the vision. And, and the holy one said to the one who spoke, he asked a question, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over the sanctuary and the host to, to, trample, uh, and the host to be trampled underfoot? Now, um, the question of how long is a great biblical question. The psalmists are asking it. The people are asking, how long, O Lord, do you bring deliverance to your people? But here, uh, an angel or an angelic figure spe steps up and asks it and has a direct answer. This is a distinctly different kind of vision, we should say, than we saw in chapter 7. An unnamed holy one. Verse 14, he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, there is an interesting debate among commentators whether this is 2,300 days or this is 1,150 days, that is, uh, accounting each morning and evening as separate things, referring especially to morning and evening sacrifices. I find uh, the interpretation of uh, 1,150 days, or about three years or so, um, to be a very uh, convincing argument. That's the exact amount of time between December 167 when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple, claims it for Zeus, offers the pig over the altar, force feeds the priests in their mouths, and December 164 when famously Judas Maccabeus cleanses and rededicates the temple. This seems to fit very nicely here to this historical referent. In verse 25, back in our official Gabrielic interpretation, puts some final touches on some of the details raised. Of course, the prince of princes, 
that he's said to rise up against makes this Antiochus Epiphanes a kind of prototype of an antichrist, uh, one who stands up clearly against God before, of course, the arrival of the Messiah. It is mentioned several times in verse 17 and elsewhere that this comes at the end. And we can now know, of course, in many ways that the end this is speaking of is, the, is in many ways the end of the beginning. And the end here is an ambiguous phase, not the end of time as we might read it, but the end of the phase before the Messiah comes, as we see this preparing the way of our Lord Jesus. Now, interestingly, Daniel gets his vision around 550 B.C., and this all comes to pass around 150 B.C. By my math, that's about 400 years or so of prophetic foretelling. It'd be something like Christopher Columbus foreseeing the rise and fall of someone like uh, Donald Trump or one of our modern presidents, some, some uh, specific figure in the future. It's quite a, a large gap to cover. Now, of course, skeptics completely dismiss all this future telling. They would say this is a fabrication, that this is written uh, during the time of the Maccabean Rebellion. But in my experience of life, the Bible has been the most trustworthy of books. I assume skeptics of Daniel's true prophetic quality deny it out of a denial of some kind of, uh, of the supernatural happening at all. I think uh, I would assume they... Uh, believe in a closed universe where miracles don't happen, where the, where, the, where the future can't actually be told by a God in heaven before time comes. But of course, denying the possibility of the supernatural, believing in a closed universe, as it were, where there is no supernatural intrusions, indeed, I think at some point, still demands something of supernatural processes. Indeed, as I always say, the second law of thermodynamics teaches entropy that things go generally from order to disorder and not from disorder to order. That is, energy dissipates. That is, the, the socks on the floor don't put themselves folded in the drawer. And yet to assume as somehow that there was disorder that comes to order, that the Big Bang Theory is somehow widely corrected, that we can understand the natural uh, recurring processes that lead from explosion to people sitting in a room speaking languages and singing beautiful songs and the, the order we all enjoy, that is a, that's a claim uh, that demands some level of faith in something that is supranatural in any case. So to believe at one level that the Bible itself, that there is a God in heaven that organizes chaos into order, that can tell the future, that knows the end from the beginning, of course, is no less of a faith commitment. I assume the Bible's trustworthiness, as it's my experience, I marvel at its internal coherence and beauty and life, and I don't blush at its claim here to tell the future in any way. That is what this is. It's a claim of telling what would come to the people of God in their darkest of hours. And that's what this is. Secondly, for our question, why is this here? Uh, it's here for two reasons, we might summarize. And really the same two reasons that are in the previous chapter and will be in the following chapters in this section of Daniel. To encourage the people of God and to prepare them. To encourage them and to prepare them. And you might be wondering, well, how, how does this vision of uh, getting out of exile and... Uh, you know, being trampled again, how exactly is that supposed to be encouraging? One monster after another, terrible persecution for the people of God, even when they finally get back to their land, they all have to go through this again. 
Daniel himself, verse 27, is overcome, lays sick for days. He is appalled by what he sees. Daniel, what's the encouraging part? Dale Ruff Davis is very helpful here, as he often is in his commentaries. He says, when you, when you pull back the, uh, the lens and you uh, look at what, what is this a picture of, the whole vision is in fact a landscape scene of livestock in the pasture of a shepherd. These are rams and goats fighting in a field before a shepherd. One ram might run into one goat, but at the end of the day, it all takes place according to the will of the good shepherd who oversees all things. This vision is an illustration of the overwhelming and repeated in every day and every passage of Daniel. The main point, repeated again and again, the God of Israel is the Most High who does whatever he pleases. That's what this is a picture of. Not of his own power he raises. Not of his own doing. He calls us from before the beginning. The God of Israel, you see, is sovereign. The call here implicit in the way it is written is to trust and to find encouragement in that favorite of Calvinist doctrines, the sovereignty of God. It is he who can see the end from the beginning. He who can predict with miraculous accuracy the future 400 years in advance. And indeed, this is encouragement for us too. Those who feel the pressure mounting against Christianity in our day. Nation may rise up against nation, but nothing is new. Nothing surprises our Lord. Nothing can happen that he cannot work out for good. But not only for our encouragement to be reminded of the sovereignty of God over all things, but also for our preparation. We are called to be prepared. It is fascinating. I had a friend stop me after I preached Daniel 7 last week in the evening service at IPC. And she said, who do you think uh, that is in chapter 7 giving Daniel the interpretation? If you look back in chapter 7 and verse 16, it's a similar scene. I approached one of those who stood there in his dream and asked him the, the truth concerning it all. There's all these unnamed characters really throughout the whole of Daniel. Uh, whether you go back to chapter 2, there is a mysterious unnamed stone uncut by human hand that hits the, uh, the statue that symbolizes all the kingdoms of the earth of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and crushes the statue and that statue becomes a hill, becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. But it all starts with this mysterious stone from heaven. Chapter 3, I remember is uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And there is one other person in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar says, it looks like a son of the gods in there. A mysterious unnamed one who's among the people of God in the furnace. Who is it in chapter 4? There's a watcher, a holy one come down from heaven. Another unnamed mysterious character who, who tells the angels in heaven to bind up the stump that represents Nebuchadnezzar, to bind it up and to cover it up. Or who is the judge in chapter 5? As famously, whose hand is it actually that writes the writing on Belshazzar's wall? Another mysterious symbol here. And who is this mysterious son of man in chapter 7? And who is it here who is asking these questions about, well, how long is the vision to take? Or who is, who is the one who can command Gabriel to tell Daniel what is to take place? You know, could this be the, the same one we all know so well? The same one who uh, throughout his earthly ministry is so concerned to prepare his own people for the persecutions to come. 
Jesus in his all of it discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and again and again, pre- preparing his people for wars and rumors of wars. Telling them in John 15, if the world hated you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. John 16, I have said these things, all these warnings of persecution to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus says. It is he who is ever concerned for the preparation of his people. Dale Ruff Davis uh, summarizes the point so well. He's explaining uh, Daniel's vision portrays an instructive and humbling history as we look here, what we've read. The reading verse four, we look back, verse four is of course the the picture of the, the ram charging and having power over all the earth. Reading verse four gives us the impression that the Persian ram is impervious and untouchable. So we are shocked when we see the king of the hill becomes street dirt. That won't happen to the goat kingdom, at least not in the same way. It's just that great horns you see are mortal. So a ruler can die and really the whole enterprise fall apart. Davis says, the text implies that superpowers are not really safe places. They get knocked off or simply peter out. They are such tenuous affairs. One can get a microcosmic taste of this, and he says in the aftermath of the Nuremberg trials of 1946, after the executions of Nazi celebrities, that same evening a container holding the amassed ashes were driven through the rain to the, to the Bavarian countryside. After an hour's drive, the vehicle stopped and the ashes were poured into a muddy ditch. Five or six years before, these men of the Nazi high command could dominate and intimidate most of the earth. But that night, a drizzle washed them away. Psalm 146, put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. Davis summarizes, he says, this sort of history then calls for a sober and durable discipleship. This kind of history, the kind that we live in, the history of man throughout history, civilization after another, calls for a sober and durable discipleship. I couldn't agree more. My my sense of things growing up in, you know, pretty good evangelical American, you know, Baptist churches, there is this wholesale devotion to a a form of what I might call the, the evangelical entertainment complex. No one will come, we say. No one will pay attention. No one will will give to the ministry unless it's fun, fun, fun. The music, the singing, the clothes, the lights, the space, the discipleship ministry, the evangelism, the college ministry. We need games and silliness and and reasons to come. Pizza. And generations of Christians raised in the fun, fun, fun ministry of philosophy. And they have found, no doubt, more fun, more entertainment elsewhere. Uh, So the, the what of this text is prophecy. The why of it is encouragement and warning. And then what is it for? And I think it is for helping us, encouraging us, causing us to ask the question of what does sober and durable discipleship look like? How might we prepare ourselves in our day as the people of God for the inevitable persecutions, for the storm clouds we see gathering on the horizon that are coming now? How do we prepare ourselves as families and as churches? So that like Daniel, right? Daniel is our picture of one who's faithful in exile. Presumably taken when he's 14 years old into the the King Nebuchadnezzar's wizardry school. 
Daniel, uh, who's able to navigate faithfully in exile for 70 years, it seems. Faithful to uh, uh, Jeremiah 29, to build houses and to live in them, to, to uh, seek the welfare of the city he's been called to. And is also, at the same time, able to uphold James 4.4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. He's able to, we might say, both do 1 Corinthians 1.9, to contextualize, being all things to all men, that he might win some. And yet also to be holy as God is holy, upholding this, these um, paradoxical tensions on the Christian life in the church age, in the age of exile. How does one live like this? Well, the answer to that is, is wisdom. We might summarize by saying that Daniel is a wisdom book. Here's examples of how to live in exile. Here's wisdom for how to live the Christian life. But how does one get wisdom? And of course, there's no flow chart. There's no three-step or 12-step processes. Where does one get wisdom? Well, we know that the fear of the Lord, of course, is the beginning of wisdom. How do we learn the fear of the Lord? In the Children's Catechism, ask it so well. How, where do we learn how to love and obey God in the Bible alone? That's why it's so important for your church. And I, pray, I, I, I praise the Lord that it is, that I'm partnered together with your church and your ministers and elders with the centrality of the Word of God in all that we do, in our worship, in our living, in our theology, in our practice. The Word of God is central. That uh, our cultures might come and go, things might shift ever so quickly in the Internet age, the Word of God never changes. He who hears my word and does what it says shall be like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. That is what you are called to do as a church, as an individual, as, a, as young families and marriages, to build your house upon the rock that is the word of God, the words of Christ. How shall the young direct their way? What light shall be their perfect guide? Your word, O Lord, shall safely lead if in this presence they confide. Psalm 119. So the Bible has the durable discipleship plan, and it's, uh, it's not very interesting or very fancy, I suppose. I think it's there, summarized for us in Deuteronomy 5 and 6. Deuteronomy 5 being the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6 being the command to teach your children the way of the Lord. You shall teach these words. You shall speak of them when you come in. You shall speak of them when you go out. You shall, they shall put, be on, on the doorways as you go in and out. They shall be on the, the sides of your head and between the rights of your eyes to do the commandments of God. And I do think that is the very best discipleship process for your family, for yourself, and for your church to make the word of God and the law of God and the Ten Commandments even central to what we're doing. If we want durable discipleship, what it means to follow Christ who says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, we'll start taking the first commandment seriously. Have no other gods before me. There will be no competition in our lives between our work and our service and devotion to the Lord. There'll be no competition on Sunday between uh, watching football or travel sports or travel dance or whatever else we might find to do on the Lord's Day. There'll be no competition because there are no other gods before thee. Or if we follow the second commandment, no graven images, we will be not given over to the, the flashy, fun, fun, fun philosophy of ministry that's so, far, so much around us where there's pictures and movies and TV shows depicting Jesus that can never do justice to the word of God that is distinctly called to be a word-centered ministry, not a pictorial or a videographer ministry. Every picture we know of God lies about who he is. They cannot be contained. 
Only the Word of God can truly take it. There is something in the very medium that makes it the message of a word-centered religion that is distinctly not an image-centered religion. Durable discipleship demands these things, demands not taking the Lord's name in vain. How do we have a sober discipleship? We have a sober worship service where we call Revelation 11 to be the center of how we begin our worship together. That we realize we gather together between, before the holy person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thrice holy God, forever eternally blessed. We quake in our sin knowing we come before him to a table that is the very symbols and signs of the wrath of God upon sin. Durable discipleship means you take not his name in vain. It means you hallow his name. You realize his holiness and his immensity, the glory of his name. It means taking the fourth commandment seriously. Christian church, but, but an hour on Sunday instead of the Lord's day falls far short of the commandment. But gathering Sunday morning and Sunday evening and for Sunday school, seeking to serve the Lord and keep the Sabbath together. This is the beginnings. This is just the first four commands. We can keep going and, and outlining what sober and durable discipleship is. It's not a mystery. <clears throat> it's living according to the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is not for the faint of heart. But is there anything you want more than for your children and for the children of this church to be brought up in the midst of sober and durable discipleship. I, of course, think that it is Jesus who is the unnamed Holy One, wanting to know how long, wanting and telling Gabriel to tell Daniel the interpretation of the vision. Jesus, in the end, of course, sends his Holy Spirit to be the guarantee of our inheritance. He who will see us to the end. There is neither height nor depth, nor angels, demons, nor principalities, or any other sort that can separate us from the love of God. And yet there is responsibility to us as a church to bring our church children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, praying that when they get old, they will not depart from it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we indeed see the walls closing in around us and our culture in our day, help us to remain faithful, O Lord. You are the very source of life and all that is good. You are holy, holy, holy. Help us to rightfully quake before your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.